Kia ora, I'm Bernard Hickey and welcome to The Kaka. This is my daily podcast about what's happening in the political economy with a focus on housing affordability, climate change and reducing child poverty. I wanted to talk today about Transmission Gully and that's partly because I'm from Wellington so I'm absolutely obsessed with Transmission Gully but also because it says a lot about who pays for public infrastructure and where the benefits go. And I've used Transmission Gully as a bit of a case study on the costs and the benefits of publicly funded infrastructure, such as motorways, but it could easily apply to railways and all sorts of other public infrastructure. The essential point here is that when the public, i.e. the government, pays for a piece of infrastructure, like a road, in effect, it creates a piece of infrastructure which increases the value of private assets around that piece of public infrastructure. It's sort of obvious and intuitive. Uh, if you build a road to a certain area, then the suburbs around that area are now more valuable because people can drive there. They can build a house, they can commute to a job, they can go to a school. And when they buy that privately owned land, Embedded in the value of that land is, in effect, the value of the infrastructure that makes that land useful. As you could expect, a chunk of land in the middle of nowhere with no roads, no power, no phone, is not very useful to anyone and therefore it's not very valuable. However, if a government was to build a big honking road and put in lots of pipes and and wires so that you could actually live there with electricity and drive there, uh, or maybe it's a railway and you take the train there, uh, suddenly it becomes a valuable piece of land. And the reason I make this point is to say that because we don't have a capital gains tax, a lot of the value created when we build public infrastructure essentially goes straight to the private owner of the land around that infrastructure. So take Transmission Gully as an example. This has been an idea over a hundred years in the making. Back in 1919, a local MP wrote a letter and started a campaign to get a big road straight through Transmission Gully from Porirua to the Kapiti Coast near Paikokoreki. And that's where eventually the road has been put and it's open today Thursday, March 31, 2022. Now, the reason it's getting so much attention here partly is because, A, it's a big road, and we've been talking about it for a long time, but it's also two years late, and the cost of it has increased from $850 million to $1.25 billion in net present value terms. And that makes it interesting as well. It's had all sorts of dramas. Uh, uh, Right back in the early 2000s, uh, the government of the day, uh, which was a Labour government, uh, didn't think it was worth building Transmission Gully because even the uh, basic benefit-to-cost ratio analysis showed that it wasn't good value for money. It takes 11 minutes off the trip from Wellington to Kapiti Coast. It is safer and will no doubt save lives and reduce accidents. But it also encourages more driving from Wellington to Kapiti Coast at faster speeds with more people and in effect increases 
total carbon emissions, uh, aside from the actual increase in carbon emissions needed to build the thing. Uh, and remember that gravel and rocks from all over the country were transported to Transmission Gully to make it happen, including from the South Island and way up in the North Island. So just imagine all these trucks full of gravel being used to take uh, them to Transmission Gully and put that road in place. It's worth going through the history of Transmission Gully to get an understanding of why it's such a big deal, why it was so hard, why it's cost so much, and why the benefits of it are so big from a private landowner point of view. So for those people not familiar with Wellington, it's a shitty place for weather. <laughs> you really don't want to be living in Wellington if you're looking for a sunny, quiet time or a flat city. Uh, I've lived here for the last 10 years and also lived here in the early 90s for a couple of years. And to be brutally honest, uh, if you're into the sun and an outdoor lifestyle, don't live in Wellington. <laughs> it's got some great jobs and actually has the highest average incomes in the country. But it is not a great place for weather. So all of those people who live in Wellington, in the dark, cold holes out of the sun, are always desperate to get away for the weekend or for the holiday. And for Wellingtonians, that means up the coast. So there's a road that goes from Wellington to Kapiti Coast, but it's a windy two-lane road that goes right along the side of the coast. It feels like it's clinging on for dear life. It's also been a dangerous road. Uh, up until a while ago, when there were wire barriers put down some of the most dangerous parts and the uh, speed was reduced, it regularly um, saw lots of head-on crashes and I remember speaking to an emergency care nurse at Wellington Hospital who said once the um, various safety mechanisms were put in about a decade ago, the number of uh, head injuries and um, emergency cases from the road had dropped because they often have to be helicoptered into Wellington Hospital. So it's a dangerous road, it's not very friendly, and because it's only two lanes, what happens is that come holiday time or even a busy holiday weekend, it gets clogged. So you can spend hours getting out of Wellington and then getting back into Wellington at the end of the holiday. So Wellingtonians have been desperate for Transmission Gully for decades. And uh, Peter Dunn, the uh, former MP for Ahariu, made it his personal mission as an MP since the early 90s to get it up and running. The trouble was it didn't really make economic sense. Its benefit to cost ratio, according to the most recent analysis that I saw was still well less than one. That meant that effectively it cost the government money even when you use the most basic measure of costs and benefits. And the main benefit measured by uh, Treasury and NZTA back in the day when it was decided was to effectively put a value on the time saved uh, by having a motorway and also the, the reduced costs of accidents and the reduced cost of petrol for those people who were driving back and forth. Uh, but even then, it didn't make sense. The benefit-to-cost ratio was less than one. But, again, Wellingtonians, desperate for it. And when I was uh, in my first job back in New Zealand after I'd been overseas for 10 years, I was the business editor at the Dominion Post. And one of the first conversations I had with my editor, my boss, Tim Pankhurst, was about how the paper had campaigned for Transmission Gully and was very keen on it. 
uh, at that stage, I was a big keen car driver and desperate to get out of uh, cold, windy Wellington too, so I thought Transmission Gully was a great idea. So over the years, there's been lots of campaigns for it. And then eventually, in 2014, the then national government, uh, with Jerry Brownlee as Transport Minister, and doing a lot of motorway building with the National Roads of Significance uh, gave it, the, gave it the, the green light, but in particular uh, organised it so that it was a PPP, a public-private partnership. Excuse my popping peas on the, on the, on the audio. Uh, essentially, the deal was to avoid the government having to borrow a couple of billion dollars in 2014, at a time when the government was trying to reduce its borrowing after the global financial crisis and the Christchurch earthquake spending, the government didn't want us to borrow the money. So, and it was also keen on the idea of public-private partnerships. Now, on the face of it, it seems like a good idea. What you do is you put the responsibility for the lifetime costs of the road onto the builder of the road, who would also be the maintainer of the road. So one of the risks, of course, when you when you build a road is that you say, I want the best possible price. And the uh, bidder puts in the lowest possible price and builds the crappiest motorway, and then you spend the next 20 years paying to repair it. But of course, the incentives in the procurement process, if you're interested purely in value for money, ends up with a um, cheap road that opens and then costs a lot over the life of the road. So the idea is you incentivize the building of a good quality road by forcing the builder to also be the maintainer for 25 years. And you work out what the cost you want to be and you say to the builder, um, give us a bid in which we pay over the next 25 years after it's built a certain amount per year for 25 years. And that increases the incentive for the builder to do a good job on it and to match up the building of the road with the maintenance plans. So that, you know, just as you should, uh, build a good quality thing to start with and then over the life of the asset, even though it might have been more expensive to start with, um, you're better off in the long run because you're not spending quite so much on maintenance. So, good idea. Uh, and the government was very keen on value for money at the time. And it came up with a price in 2014 of $850 million. That's the net present value of payments of $125 million every year for 25 years after the thing was built. And the plan was to have it built by 2020. And the deal was pushed through on the 29th of July 2014 by Jerry Brownlee um, and congratulated by Peter Dunn. And remember, Peter Dunn had written into his... Uh, coalition agreements with firstly Labour in 2002 and 2005 and then National in 2008 that whatever you did in the coalition agreement you had to organise a PPP to get Transmission Gully built because everyone in Porirua was very keen on the idea and Ohariu of the Transmission Gully uh, a motorway. So um 2014, the deal's done. Why is it done on July the 29th? Well, that's just a few weeks before the calling of the 2014 election. And the government of the day, thinking that it might lose, uh, decided to make sure that the deal was done, the paperwork was done, the signing was done, 
and effectively forcing Labor, if it got into power in 2014, to complete the project, i.e. not pull out. And so that day in 2014 is when things really got started. Now, construction didn't really get going for another couple of years, and there was the remote possibility that uh, Labor, when it got in in 2017, would uh, reverse it or stop it. But it honoured the contract, which was a contract between the Crown and the Wellington Gateway Partnership, which was itself a consortium involving what was originally an Australian company called Leighton Holdings, which eventually became a Spanish company and funded by ACC and a couple of big international infrastructure funds. And the idea was, of course, that uh, this private consortium would borrow money and get hold of investment, equity investment, from the international markets and from big pension funds, put the money in, it would have a rate of return, it would work out what it was going to be, and then deliver a road, and there would be a fixed price of $850 million. Well, after 2017, when things really got cracking with the road building, uh, in fact, 20, in the years, a couple of years before that, we had some bad earthquakes, we had some bad, very wet winters, then we had COVID, and COVID again, and all sorts of dramas. A lot of the engineers and the project managers were Australian and had to go home. Uh, then there were some problems with the wrong type of tar seal, or the, or the way that it was laid was wrong. And so what was supposed to be a motorway that opened in 2020 has only just opened on the 31st of March 2022, after five deadlines passed. And the price has blown out from $850 million to $1.25 billion at least. We still don't have the final price. NZTA uh, is now uh, working on, uh, on crossing the T's and dotting the I's and working out how much money is left in the till now that the thing's up and running. And we'll have to come up with a different number from $125 million per year for the next 25 years. In fact, NZTA has already paid over $200 million in various compensations after various legal disputes between the PPP and NZTA. All sorts of grief and complaints about, you know, should I have to pay the price for COVID? You're the ones who set the rules that meant that my workers couldn't fly in. Uh, you know, how can we possibly be blamed for an earthquake, which, you know, we had no idea it was going to change the uh, engineering uh, work for the motorway. Um Lots of good fun, and there are some lawyers who are very well off now because of all of these disputes. So, and Labour never really loved the whole PPP idea, and to be frank, all around the world now, people are, are, are moving away from them. What was thought to be a good idea to um, reduce the risk and uh, shovel the um, balance sheet cost off to the private sector, in the end, costs more money in the long run, and often these things have to be guaranteed by the state anyway. And Bob's your uncle, often it's the government that ends up with a mess at the end, as we've discovered, and so people are moving away from them, um, both in the, on the left and the right of politics all around the world. And you'd have to say, after this complete debacle with a transmission gully, that the idea of PPPs is um, in the dirt, in New Zealand at least for a while. Uh, we'll see how it all uh, works out. Um, National and ACT are still pretty keen on them. Uh, and Labour haven't completely ruled them out, but you have to say that we're unlikely to see the sorts of large-scale, slightly complicated PPPs for motorway projects in future. Uh, and there's no suggestion of doing it for anything like the 
um, uh, Auckland Light Rail project. However, so this is just the background on what's happening with Transmission Gully. And yesterday there was a formal opening of Transmission Gully, there was a porphyry, there was speeches from dignitaries, a couple of hundred people turned up, a bunch of ex-MPs, current MPs, current ministers, including Labour, who remember never really loved this thing to bits. Although the initial sign-off, vague green light, was given under the then Helen Clark government uh, with the prodding and the nagging of Peter Dunn. But it was National that really got the whole PPP thing going and signed off on it in 2014. And the first turning of the sod was a John Key special. So um, as is the way with these big, long uh, transport projects, it's often the opposition who end up taking the credit, even though they may have opposed the thing to start with and just happened to be around at the right time when the ribbon was there to be cut. So uh, that's Transmission Gully and why the ribbon was cut by Jacinda Ardern yesterday. Uh, Lynn, uh, who was taking pictures, and I drove out to the Paikokariki end of Transmission Gully for the uh, ceremony, and there was a stand-up news conference afterwards in which initially Jacinda Ardern spoke. Uh, there was also Grant Robertson, the Deputy Prime Minister and Finance Minister, and Michael Wood, the Transport Minister, there to talk about the road and the plans. And uh, I asked them uh, a bunch of questions, starting off with... Uh, whether this was good value for money and I went on to ask about the uh, how much extra it had cost because it was a PPP about who made the benefits from this road given it was funded by the public or will be funded by the public over the next 25 years and whether or not we'd see another one of these things built ever again. Uh, to the finance minister, um, is this was this road good value for money? Yeah. Well, as the minister of transports just said, the original establishment of the PPP here was flawed. Um, it's ended up costing New Zealanders more than it needed to, uh, but it is uh, a tremendous addition to the network. And so, while um, you know we've been very clear in our views about what went wrong, today is a day to celebrate the fact that we are here, that we have done this. It will. Um, provide significant productivity benefits for the country, um, significant social benefits for bringing people together, but clearly there were have been significant issues uh, in getting to this point. So how much extra did it cost because it was a PPP? Well, I think Minister Wood and I will debate that one day because we haven't quite finished the cost yet. And? PPP that meant it, it didn't work properly or would cost too much? Well I think you can go back and review the comments of both the Auditor General and the Infrastructure Commission in this respect. It was rushed when it was set up. Um, certainly uh, my view of that uh, is that it was almost sort of being set up to prove a political point um, that PPPs um, uh, were the right thing to do by the previous government. There were very complex arrangements that were set up between the various parties. I mean that every time an issue has had to be dealt with We've ended up in legal wrangles between whether it's a partnership, the builder, the maintainer, the crown. Um, that is overly complicated and creates risks all around. So I think there are some real lessons here. As we move forward, we want to make sure that those are really investigated so that we know that if we were to do this again, we wouldn't have these challenges that we've inherited from the previous government. Uh, the land prices around here have risen by $5 billion over the last five years. Um, in large part because of Transmission Gully. How do you feel about private landowners capturing the gains from public spending without paying tax on it? 
large transport infrastructure of this kind that delivers better outcomes does tend to have the effect of increasing land values. You'll see that in some of the mega projects that we're taking forward, including from light rail, we're now talking about value capture as a way of managing that issue. Obviously this project was set up for we were here and had the ability to look at those things. So that is as it is. Um, to some degree it's a good thing, it means that there's economic growth and investment going into this region, but as we take projects forward, particularly large-scale ones, it's something that we are considering. Isn't it privatising the profits and passing the costs on to the public? Well, as the Minister just said, that's not something we can influence because we inherited this project as it is. And we understand the importance of investigating value capture, and I, I note that the now departing National Party Finance spokesperson, mm. Simon Bridges, also talked about the importance of understanding value capture in large-scale projects. As the Minister's indicated, that's what we're doing with Auckland Light Rail, looking at how we can do that in a fair and equitable way. So, in many ways, I agree with you. Unfortunately, we can't rewrite history in this project. But a capital gains tax would have uh, captured that. Well, possibly, but again, we can't go back in the past. Last well, questions, guys. Just on climate change, is this going to be the last big motorway built in New Zealand like this? Uh, look, I wouldn't necessarily say that. Clearly, we're in an era in which we have to rethink where our transport infrastructure spends go, spend goes and to ensure that we're doing it in a way that does reduce our emissions um, over time. Uh, there are real challenges, particularly when we have growth regions, about how we do that. So we take it case by case, and I think watch out for more direction there of the emissions reduction plan. Just going to get Thanks, Thank you. Thank you. So there we have it, Michael Wood there, um, keeping his options open about whether we ever build another motorway. Got to remember that Wales, in the last year, in Britain, has announced that it will never build another motorway because of its plans to get to carbon zero. And I am uh, also sure that Austria has uh, done the same thing, which is to um, uh, not build any more motorways because from a, a carbon emissions point of view, they just do not work. They encourage more traffic. They increase emissions, not just in the building of them, but also in the running of them. You may have heard in that exchange a question I gave to both Michael Wood and to Grant Robertson about who are the winners from these public infrastructure projects. I did some analysis of what's happened to land values in the Kapiti Coast and on the Horafanua district in the last five or six years uh, as the Transmission Gully project was being built and approved and as real estate agents and buyers started to realise and started to build into the price of land around there, the increased convenience, the increased demand from people in Wellington, remember, who are trying to get away from the shitty weather to the Kapiti Coast, to their holiday houses, or for those people who wanted to commute from flat, warm, dry, <laughs> dry land on the Kapiti Coast to their job in the shitty Wellington. And... What we saw was a massive increase in house prices and land prices in Kapiti Coast and Horafinua over that time. So, and it was more than just the usual increase in massive house prices in the rest of the country. To give you an idea, in today's, dawn, uh, in today's um, uh, version of the Kaka email, I've included charts comparing what's happened with house prices in Horafinua, Kapiti Coast and Wellington along with the rest of the country, for the last seven or eight years. So 2016-17 was when the Transmission Gully really got cracking. 
And uh, obviously over the last three or four years, people started to realise, gee, it might actually happen. And even though there's been a couple of years of delays, uh, now that it's open, uh, people are, are, are banking it. They can see that it's easier to get out to the coast, it's safer, more people will want to live there, more people want to buy houses there, and that has pumped up the value of land and land and houses there on those regions. And by more than what we've seen uh, in Wellington, for example. So over the last five years to February, Wellington house prices have risen 73%. And you think, boy, it'd be hard to beat that. Well, Kapiti Coast, house prices have risen 97%. Horofenua, house prices have risen 155%. I also had a look at the land valuations uh, that are compiled by the Kapiti and Horofenua district councils. Remember, every three years um, there are fresh ratings valuations done and the councils report how much the total value of the land values and the capital values are in their district. And so you can work out up until the last uh, cut-off point, um, snapshot point for valuations, that uh, in the three years to 2019 for Horofenua and the three years to 2020 for the Kapiti Coast, so those are the key years when the road was being built and, and approved, that the value of uh, houses and land in Kapiti and Horofenua rose by $10.3 billion to $30.6 billion. Now that's land and houses. Now it's really the land where the value gets increased by building public infrastructure. The houses don't matter so much. Uh, it really is the land where the value is pumped into. And you can see that because land values have risen by more than capital values, as you'd expect. So over those three-year periods, as measured by the combined land valuations by the Kapiti District Council and the Horofenua District Council, Kapiti's land values rose by $5.4 billion and Horofenua's by $2.4 billion. So we've got a combined land valuation increase over the period of the building of Transmission Gully of 7.8 billion. Hang on a minute, you say. How can you possibly say that all the land value increase in that area is because of Transmission Gully? Remember, everyone else's land values were rising at the same time too, in large part because of falling interest rates and uh, controls on land availability by councils and uh, a whole bunch of other things, costs of building materials, all sorts of things going on. How can you possibly say 7.8 billion is the number of the increase in value for land caused by Transmission Gully? Well, that's true. One way to sort of separate it out, and I wouldn't call this particularly sophisticated, but it's at least one way to try, is to look at what land values did in and land and house values did in the rest of the country. So overall, so these this is the rest of the country who didn't have Transmission Gully separated out. Well, when you look at land values in the rest of the country, they rose over that, those, that same three-year period by 51.4%. So if land values had risen in Kapiti and Horofenua in the absence of a motorway by the same value as the rest the same percentage as the rest of the country, you would have seen an increase of 5.8 billion, not the 7.8 billion that we actually got. So the clear difference in land value appreciation created by Transmission Gully was around about $2 billion. 
Now remember the thing is costing 1.25 billion. Now remember here what we're talking about. This is a piece of public infrastructure paid for by all taxpayers, but the benefit, the crystallization of the benefits of that piece of public infrastructure has been pumped into the value of privately owned land. So just think about this. We've got a public cost, but a private benefit of the biggest motorway built in our history. 1.25 billion of cost, $2 billion of benefit. Now it doesn't wash its face in its own right with the usual benefit to cost ratio measures, which also, by the way, didn't include the potential liabilities of having to um, buy carbon credits in the next 20 or 30 years because we've failed to meet our international obligations. So you could argue the benefit-to-cost ratio should actually be much, much worse than that. Now you start to understand why it makes sense for governments who want to please landowning voters to go ahead with these projects. Because, no, it doesn't make sense for the taxpayer alone, but it really makes sense for landowners around those places where public infrastructure has been spent. So remember, renters, who of course get none of the benefit of the rise in land values, who pay GST and income tax, are paying that $125 million a year, that was the original plan, it's more likely to be $180 million a year, in taxes, for Transmission Gully, and the end result, in fact the result right now, it's already happened, is a crystallisation of that value and the $2 billion increase in the value of land in Kapiti and Horafenua. No wonder proposals for motorways which make no financial sense for a government are approved. Now this is a problem if you think that motorways are a bad idea for the climate and also a bad idea for the um, public finances, but you can see why politically it makes sense. For um, the previous government that loved the idea of uh, big new motorways and in particular uh, projects of national significance, as I was described, and these were projects that would normally not be approved by NZTA because they didn't meet the benefit-to-cost ratio thresholds, uh, but they were pushed through because they were projects of national significance. And when we say projects of national significance, we mean projects that were going to generate billions of dollars of private capital gains that were untaxed by people who owned land around those projects. And this is the real problem here. It's not so much of a problem to have public infrastructure create private benefits. It is a problem if you're not taxing the gains on those private assets because of the building of that public infrastructure. And in every other country in the world, they have capital gains taxes. Uh, and in fact, some other countries regularly use what they call value capture uplift rates. So this is where a council in particular, or could be a state government, says we're going to rezone this area or we're going to build a motorway or a railway and we know this is going to increase the value of the privately held land around that. And that capture of that value uplift by private owners shouldn't be 100% captured by private owners. It should be shared with the public. So what you see is a special rate, a targeted rate, 
a value capture uplift rate. And that's actually what the current Labour government is proposing to help fund the Auckland light rail project. That is currently opposed by the national government and by the citizens of ratepayers um, run councils. Uh, and it's actually very difficult for councils to get through these special rates because, understandably, many of the people who vote in council elections are or who are councillors uh, see the benefits in capturing the uh, um, the economic value of those public infrastructure investments in the land value which they uh, receive privately. So um, I think it's worth making the point on this day, the 31st of March 2022, that the New Zealand taxpayers, in particular renters, are about to pay $180 million a year for a road which they may use and enjoy, but the real benefit, the crystallisation of all of those economic benefits of the less petrol, the 11 minutes saved times X hundred thousand people who use the road, that has been captured by private landowners in the Kapiti Coast and in Horafenua, and it is a benefit they've already seen of $2 billion at least and increased land values, which were not taxed. And you may have heard my question there to Grant Robertson that it's a pity that there is no capital gains tax for that. My personal view is that a, a land value tax uh, that is applied every year on the valuation of the land is the simplest, cleanest, fairest way to capture some of that uh, unearned benefit that we have from a government using public funds to create private value. I'm Bernard Hickey, and that was the Kaka. It is the 31st of March. Kaki te anō.